0: Well, that was strange. (laughs) Um, I guess we now know where J.K. Rowling got the idea for Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. If you're a guest with us, uh, you're likely thinking, what did I get myself into today and where are the exits? They're right there and right there. But I have to admit that I'm really excited to jump into this passage with you guys today uh, because I love this stuff. And I'm not just talking about ancient literature. I'm talking Battlestar Galactica, Dune. (laughs) 12 Monkeys Foundation Series. And I'm all over it. In fact, every year I challenge myself to, uh, to read one of the Hugo Award winners, which is the Science Fiction Book Award of the Year, for those of you that didn't know. But uh, you have to know my wife actually said I shouldn't share that about myself. <laughs> uh, she thought you would end up being more disturbed by me than you should be by the, by the Division of the Beasts. But I want to start here because the best way for us to understand the type of literature that we encounter in Daniel 7 is to first recognize it in our own culture. You may not recognize the stories I mentioned, but our culture is full of them. Books like Hunger Games, Divergent, or shows like Walking Dead, Game of Thrones. Sure, the symbols are different, but the themes are the same. They had freakish beasts, we have zombies. But then and now we're talking about dramatic upheaval, Life in chaos, really into the world type of stuff. This sort of writing, it paints a picture of a different reality. It challenges us to see our world in a new light. We call this sort of thing apocalyptic literature. And it's weird, confusing, and difficult. And it requires us to approach it with great humility, but also great confidence as God's true word. So before we really dive in, Uh, I want to go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we come to your word with humility. We recognize that much is revealed, though much is still hidden. May we have new eyes to see the world as you do. Please help us to see as Daniel does. And we ask as Daniel does to see the truth of the matter. It's in your name we pray, and in your name we hope. Amen. Now, Daniel 7 has been preached and taught for thousands of years. And the truth is, there are some unhelpful ways we can go about it. On the one hand, we could approach this text like astrologers, right? Looking for the signs that we can link up to predict the future. But this is contrary to Daniel's purpose. Approaching the text like an astrologer claims that if I know the future, I can control it. It's just another grasp for control. But we've just spent seven weeks talking about our lack of control and the goodness found in it. Secondly, we could approach this text like preppers. You guys familiar with this term? (laughs) It was new to me. But there's this show called Doomsday Preppers. It's on National Geographic. And its goal is to highlight people who, who squirrel away food, weapons, batteries, hazmat suits, preparing for some doomsday event. And to read Daniel 7 and following chapters like a prepper is to say, so God's going to come and make everything right in the end. Great. I'm going to hunker down and wait until then. Forget the rest of you, I'm taking care of me and mine. But this is to forget the last chapters, the last six chapters we've read. Daniel lived in an apocalyptic world, a world in crisis, a world torn apart. But we see he didn't hunker down. Daniel sought the good of those around him. He wasn't just going to wait it out. He was engaging in it. So today, what we need to try to do is to approach this vision like Daniel. And this means we need to understand a little bit more about apocalyptic literature. I mean, why would God even communicate with Daniel in this way? Can can we kind of be honest and ask that question? I mean, why the weird vision? It seems more confusing than clarifying. But I think we see part of this answer in the way Daniel reacted to the vision. He sought answers. He wrestled with the vision. God communicates with Daniel in this way to give him understanding, not just blind obedience. Because God isn't providing a a timeline or a map, rather an abstract painting, a guide, to grab us emotionally and encourage us for today. Daniel's vision changed the way he looked at the world around him. In these 14 verses, we observe the importance of the phrase, I saw. And this is fascinating. It, in Hebrew or Aramaic in this case, has a way of taking a verb and intensifying it. It's kind of the difference between saying, I broke and I destroyed. And we find that intensification in this phrase, I saw. Thus, Daniel saw so intensely, it was more likened to an experience. We might think of it as like virtual reality, right? He didn't just see it, he was in it and he was terrified. (laughs) He was experiencing a different world, where the fundamental structures, the way that people think about the universe, are reimagined. It's cosmic, and it's overwhelming. We often think about this type of literature as as only telling us the future. But in reality, it's trying to show us what life is really about, what it means, if anything, what the real problem is, where hope's at, if at all, and where it's all going. In fact, it's a wake-up call to a different understanding of reality. The idea is that this vision is revealed not to give specifics of what's to come, but to change our perspective now, to change the way we view history, our world, and our own situations. And that's what it means to read apocalyptic literature, and that's our task today to see differently, to have eyes that see, ears that hear, and a heart that understands. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to open it up to Daniel 7. If you haven't been with us, we've spent the last seven weeks uh, walking with Daniel. This story comes after the kingdom of Judah has fallen to the kingdom of Babylon. We've been walking with Daniel through what we call exile, through a life out of control. He's moved away from everything he knew given a new name, and forced to serve the king who destroyed his home. We find that Daniel and his friends were faithful to God Most High, even though they were placed in many life-threatening situations. They acted not only in wisdom, but most surprisingly, they acted for the benefit of the city that they've been placed in. One of the interesting things that we've learned about Daniel along the way is that he interprets dreams. And and many of the ways that we've seen Daniel sort of in action over these six chapters is his activity of interpreting dreams for others. Now we find out that Daniel had his own visions. And and he needed them to make it through exile. And so do we. So we look at chapter 7 together. We're asking, how is Daniel challenging our perspective? And it seems that there are at least four ways Daniel is challenging how we see the world that we live in and the world to come. First is, Daniel challenges us to see that empires come and go. And you see this, you really see this from the text that we just read together. It it sounds like something from Wizard of Oz, right? Lions, tigers, bears, oh my. And I think Dorothy was actually kind of on to something. One looks like a lion, one a bear, one a leopard. And if those aren't scary enough, then oh my. The fourth beast simply fills the seer with fear. And we find in verse 17 that these represent kings and kingdoms. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, this sounds kind of familiar. It sounds a lot like Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And those of you that thought that would be right. (laughs) And a similar thing is meant here, too. Just like Nebuchadnezzar's dream, God is showing Daniel that empires come and go. Powerful kingdoms of the world are symbolized, and their destruction by another stronger kingdom. But there is only one nation that really lasts forever. So instead of a statue from Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel sees fantastical beasts as representing these kings and kingdoms. And we can get caught up with the, with the weird beasts, right? But these images were actually kind of common. In fact, archaeologists have found this picture. Or this, um, maybe, yep. This picture in Darius's palace from around the same time. Now, it's not the same image from, as Daniel's uh, vision, but we find that this form of expression was common. These images represent how powerful the kings and kingdoms are. They're not exactly meant to identify specific kings in history, but rather to describe what they were like, how powerful they were. For instance, one of the most common images of strength and of power is the horn odd to us, I think. (laughs) But this fourth beast has 11 of them. God wants Daniel and us to recognize that even the most powerful empires come and go. We should have a bigger vision than one empire that we find ourselves in. Because no matter what you think, that empire has an expiration date, even this one. And this vision changed the way Daniel saw the world and his place in it. Empires come and go, and we shouldn't get too comfortable. How many of us have become too comfortable? Too comfortable with the privilege that we have? Too acclimated to a place that's not our true home? Are we living in the American dream or Daniel's dream? This whole series we've been talking about what it means to live as foreigners, as strangers, If we truly live lives transformed by the kingdom of God, we would see that this isn't our true home. So then, the way that we do our jobs, balance our budgets, parent our kids, would look radically different from those around us, as it should. Otherwise, we just make this nation, the American dream, into an idol we serve. And we become become blind to the injustices around us. Of course, we work for the benefit of this nation. We want it to flourish. We are called to help it flourish. This is what Daniel did. He worked in the government, and he was fully invested. But he never forgot it was only temporary. I mean, he lived under two different empires and at least four different rulers. And that's why this vision at this time was so important for Daniel's life. He had lived, as we've read, most of his life under one empire, one ruler. And according to what we just read, he receives this vision right after Nebuchadnezzar in the first year of the new king, Belshazzar. Daniel's vision showed him that empires come and go, and even more was on the horizon. This vision gave Daniel a perspective to be just as faithful and passionate under the coming rule of Darius as he was under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel knew that only one nation lasted forever, and that was his home. Yet more than this, an apocalypse reveals that empires aren't even the root of the problem. Empires come and go, and we shouldn't get too comfortable. But Daniel also challenges us to see that it's actually worse than you think. (laughs) We've already referenced Daniel's fear. The guy who would spend a night in the lion's den is terrified. And in verse 2, Daniel says, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea. For the people of this culture, the sea was the place of chaos in the place of evil. That's why later on, when we, when we read in Revelation 21, when the new heavens and the new earth come, you'll find that there's no sea, no chaos, no evil. Notice here in Daniel 7 that the beasts come up out of the sea. It's a disturbing image, really. It, it looks almost like the beasts are the spawn of evil itself. It's almost like there's an enemy of God behind the evil in the world. And the evil unleashed in the beasts. Truly terrifying to imagine. And these beasts, or kingdoms as we just discussed, are made to destroy. In fact, at times it seems like evil is winning. In verse 21, we see that the saints were being overcome. And as we look ahead to the remaining chapters, the scene gets ugly. There is a cosmic battle between good and evil, and that's what Daniel's seeing. Your enemy isn't that person or group. It's not some political party, other religion or terrorist organization. We only think that's the problem. The Apostle Paul kind of put it like this for us. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And this sounds odd, right? maybe a little taken aback, like it's something out of the movies. But we live in a world where there's more than we can usually see. Some of you might be aware of of Christ Community's partnership uh, with the church in Rwanda, one of our international partners. It's an area that's suffered atrocious genocide just 22 years ago. A million people were slaughtered by their friends and their neighbors in 120 days. And Romero DeLari, commander of the UN Peacekeepers that was stationed there, was commanded to do nothing. And he witnessed it all. Afterwards, someone asked him if he could possibly believe in God. His response? I know there's a God because in Rwanda I shook hands with the devil. I have seen him, I have smelled him, and I have touched him. I know the devil exists, and therefore... I know there is a God. Real evil. A school shooting. The 16th Street church bombing. The abuse of a child. We often think our biggest problem is political or social or economic. Or maybe that person who doesn't agree with you on Facebook. But it's not. There is a spiritual evil set on destroying us all. And that is the problem. So we shouldn't be surprised by suffering because real evil exists and it's set against God's people. Daniel saw it and we should too. Daniel experienced it and we might also. And like Daniel, we can choose to be faithful and loving even towards those who seek to destroy us because we know they're not the true enemy anyway. Daniel challenges us To see that the problem is worse than you think. And therefore, suffering shouldn't surprise us. Next, Daniel challenges us to see that judgment is coming. Uh, We talked about judgment a couple weeks ago. and It's one of those things that just won't go away, will it? (laughs) What did you expect of apocalyptic literature? It's uplifting. So let's look together at this next scene in Daniel 7, 9 through 10. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Can you sense the tension in this moment? It's palpable. Daniel is so specific when he recounts this part of the vision. Whereas the beasts, you seem to be looking sort of straight ahead at this singular image. Now you get the impression that Daniel is sort of gazing around in wonder, right? You have the Ancient of Days, God, a fiery throne, the multitudes and multitudes before him, and the books that are opened. Why does Daniel build this tension? Because judgment is coming, and it's serious. The books are opened. Just another way of saying nothing is hidden. Everything you've done laid bare, for judgment is coming. Daniel saw it, and we should too. But is judgment good news or bad news? Anyone? You might respond, yes. Right? (laughs) For the oppressed, judgment is good news. Judgment from God is not only salvation from oppressors, But vindication for the oppressed, where Christians are still imprisoned and abused, for the marginalized people in our own nation, judgment is a vision that brings hope. But judgment is also really, really bad news, because the evil isn't just out there, right? But it's in here. I'm part of the problem too. I'm one of the oppressors. I ignore God's command, and I see that judgment is coming. Daniel saw this too. And in chapter nine, he writes one of the most beautiful prayers of confession and repentance. We've already discussed sort of the foundation that prayer is in Daniel's life, and really how it's one of the ways that we can learn to see like Daniel. But Daniel prays Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And what's so interesting, that as this prayer continues, Daniel doesn't just pray for his own sins, but the sins of his people. For the entire history of Israel. He admits the shame of kings and commoners alike, past and present. Daniel shows us that we must weep for our own sins, but also for those of our nation. He confessed 500 years worth of national sins. When's the last time we've done something like that? And this changes how we see ourselves, right? We're not just individuals doing one thing, doing our own thing, confessing our own sins, when we worship the idols of individualism, it blinds us to a bigger reality. Judgment is coming for our own sins and for those of our nation. A nation we care about, but is not without its faults. A shameful past and present. There's much to weep over. There's much to confess. Because the time is now, because judgment is coming. And with Daniel, we keep the same orientation with our prayer. Because Daniel cries to God, we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. And I just can't get over this image of confidence and humility. And God does act in mercy. And this brings us to our last scene this morning. Daniel challenges us to see a new hope. And I don't mean Luke Skywalker, but the Son of Man. Coming into his dominion. For Daniel writes, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And in comparison with the beasts, this king and kingdom are perfect. Instead of the beasts who have vestiges of humanity, You know, a human eye there, a human mouth, maybe one gets a human mind. Rather, now you see the one who exhibits perfect humanity. Instead of chaos, you find order. Even just look at the way that it's written. Some of your Bibles may break it out like this The vision of the beast is described in straight prose, nothing special. But here you find poetic verse. It's beautiful, it's the way it's supposed to be. This is our apocalypse. This is our end. The kingdom of God in all its glory. For God says a son of man is our hope. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. Jesus says, I am the son of man. Come to judge the nations and rescue my people. But not in the way anyone expected, even Daniel. Even though Jesus is the perfect son of man with all power and dominion, He comes as a lowly carpenter, poor, oppressed, and living in exile. And nowhere is this more clear than in Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial before the nations. And when we read this passage in Matthew with eyes that see like Daniel 7, you can't help but be struck by the irony. In Daniel's vision, you have the grand throne room with God, thousands of attendants, and a trial in progress over a blasphemous king. And this scene ends with all authority given to the Son of Man. On the other hand, you have Matthew 26. You find the room of Caiaphas, with scribes and elders gathered as attendants, and a trial in progress. But instead of the nations being judged as blasphemous, Jesus is. Instead of the Son of Man exalted, he is judged, deserving death. But Jesus knows better. He looks back to Daniel 7 and points to himself as the Son of Man, saying to them, But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He quotes Daniel as if to say, You guys, if you saw clearly, you would notice that this is the beginning of my enthronement and the beginning of your salvation. How does the Son of Man receive all authority and dominion? Through the cross. How does he conquer all other powers? The cross. It all points back there. The cross is the very exaltation of Christ. The books of judgment were open on him. He suffered the judgment due to us so that we can be in the kingdom that is rightfully his. And here we find the true answer to Daniel's plea for God to act in mercy and forgive. And to the world, this doesn't make sense. It requires a new vision. It takes eyes that see the one who is seated at the right hand of power. This is our hope. In a God who came to save us and is coming back to reign in full, to take his rightful place in full view of all people, Nations and languages. Daniel got a glimpse of this and it changed the way he saw everything. Daniel's vision allowed him to remain faithful to God while he lived in exile. And it's this vision that we need to be shaped like Daniel. So, how do we see like Daniel? How do we live in a world that's hostile to us? How do we serve a world where the monsters of evil and the human heart wreak havoc every day? How do we wait patiently for God's ultimate victory while we endure suffering? We look to the Son of Man, who is obedient to the cross and to whom all authority has been given. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this vision you gave to Daniel. A vision ultimately of hope. Because we need hope. In a time when things seem out of control, whether nationally, socially, or right in our backyard, we desperately need your kingdom's reign in our lives as we wait for the coming of your son in all glory and power. May we be a people like Daniel who give of themselves, who are strange to the empire we live in, who confess the sins of our people, who see the reality of our true home. Along with Daniel, we do not present our pleas to you because of our own righteousness, because of your great mercy. Thank you for your mercy this day. Amen.